You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. But good to be with you guys uh, this morning. You guys sing well. I love singing with you as a church. Uh, it's a blessing and an encouragement. Um, let's, let's continue to pray for the North Africa team. And also just by way of, hey, thank you so much for everyone who came out yesterday to help the fall work day. Uh, let's give it up for them. Thank you, Sean, and for Scott for helping lead that. Um, this is a property that's very well used. Um, every day, there's, there's like 100 people here every day. Uh, there's a school that meets here. And so with that just comes, as you know, if you're a homeowner, just projects, right? Um, and so that's a lot um, for um, specifically as we think of Scott and uh, Sean to, to keep track of. So go out of your way to thank them. Uh, they put in a lot of time uh, caring for this facility. Okay, as we transition to the sermon, many of you... Uh, know this guy named Charles Spurgeon. Perhaps you've read something that he wrote, and some of you are like, Charles, who? Right? No worries. Charles Spurgeon lived a hundred years ago, like an ancient dude, yet he's arguably the greatest preacher to ever preach. Thousands of men and women came to faith in Christ as a result of his preaching. And when he was asked about his preaching philosophy, I love this, Spurgeon replied, I take my text and make a beeline to the cross. It was Christ-centered, Christ-exalting preaching. And when Spurgeon died in 1892, condolences flowed in through, from, from all over the world. And this is 1892. And sympathies from royalties and state dignitaries from all over the world came pouring in for this one man. And it's estimated that over 100,000 people, this is 1892, 100,000 people packed the streets of London as Spurgeon's body was laid to rest. Honestly, it was like a procession like fit for a king. And amidst this grand outpouring of love for this one man who impacted thousands for Christ, Spurgeon requested one thing of his burial, to be buried in a simple wooden box with these words engraved. From 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. And when I read these words, which were Paul to Timothy, or when I hear the testimony of a godly Christian like Spurgeon, who impacted thousands for Christ, I I find myself asking the question, "Will, will, will others say that this was true of my life? Will I, in a sense, be faithful to God all the way to the finish line? Will I, will I be running across, you know, that finishing tape at the finish line? Will I be running through that tape? Or will I be limping? Or maybe I won't finish at all. And throughout human history, we've seen folks begin kind of this metaphor of race, uh, the race of faith. Folks who begin well only to finish poorly or even tragically, not at all. And we saw this actually just a few months ago in the life of Saul, King Saul. How he came to the throne anointed by God, yet he dies a man, an old man, far from faith in God. Samson, classic example, right? 
a powerful anoint, powerful man anointed by the Spirit of God. He's like untouchable, yet he dies a, a frail man, weak in faith. Lot, the nephew of Abraham, God grants him the choices of land and this incredible wealth, yet Lot dies or becomes an old man who loves the things of this world more than God. Gideon, incredible success on the battlefield. As he nears the end of his life, we get a picture of a man who lived a very compromised life. And, of course, Judas. He walked and talked and ate with Jesus. And I think sometimes we miss this, but for three years, that's a lot of time to be with Jesus, the Son of God. And yet, he hangs himself because of his betrayal of Jesus. Many who begin this race of faith begin well, yet finish poorly or not at all. And if we're honest, if we're honest, I I think we can see how this could or, or might even be true in our own lives. You know, perhaps like our own faith began well, like really well, like burst of energy well, sprinting out of the starting blocks, consumed by a desire to, to read our Bible, to know God better, to take every moment to listen to you know, this Christian podcast or to read that Christian book. But as time moved forward, as the clock advanced, as that initial energy and excitement perhaps wore off in the harsh realities of everyday life, the ups and downs, the twists and turns begin to settle in as you round from mile one to mile two, to mile three, to mile four, to mile five. Perhaps you're left wondering, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? Is following Jesus, running this life of faith, really worth it? You know, in the beginning, we assume that, you know, I accept Jesus and everything in my life will become happy and good and fluffy and unicorns and cotton candy. That I'll be, you know, strumming the harp as I wake up in the morning singing, visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Right? But often the longer we run this race of faith, our life doesn't always become better. Often it feels as if our life is actually becoming worse. Our temptations to sin are getting more tempting, not less. Our marriage is not becoming more loving, it's becoming perhaps more bitter-filled. Our kids are not becoming more obedient, they're becoming more rebellious. Our neighbors, our co-workers are not becoming more open to Jesus. They've become more resentful or hostile towards our Christian beliefs. Our Christian community is not becoming more Christ-like. They've actually deconstructed their faith and left the church, leaving us alone and isolated. And so in this race of faith, when the nagging and, and chronic like hip and knee pains surface or flare up yet again it's in these challenging moments of life of acute pain and suffering that we consider that perhaps running this life of faith might not really be worth it we'll turn to the book of hebrews it's in the new testament it's towards the back of your bible or turn on your bible to the book of hebrews 
I'm on page 1,000. Isn't that cool? And for the next year, years, however long it takes us, we're going to be studying this book of Hebrews. And as we study Hebrews together, we're going to discover over and over, again and again, over and over, again and again, this one message that Jesus is better. That Jesus is better. And because Jesus is better, life with Jesus is always worth it. Therefore, the encouragement to us is don't give up. Let's pray as we look at Hebrews together. Lord, we ask as we step into your word, as we step into Hebrews this morning, we ask for you by the power of your spirit to put us to life, to the truth that is here. Lord, we want to become more like you. We need your help. We pray for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to open with an illustration. I heard another pastor give it, so I can't take credit for it, but I'm stealing it. And that this, suppose you go to your mailbox one afternoon to open the box to see what kind of mail you got, and you, and you pull out an envelope. And it's rather thick. You can kind of feel like, oh, there's some substance in here. This looks like maybe perhaps a significant or important document. And so what do you do? You, you turn it over and you immediately look at kind of where it would say, like, who it is to. Like, is this to me? Like, am I in trouble? Is this to my wife, my kids, my neighbor, hopefully? Like, I don't want this perhaps, you know, significant letter, right? So you look at this the, the, where this should be, but it's blank. There's no name. There's no address. There's no city, no state, no zip. There's nothing there. And so curious, right? Because that's weird. you like, okay, well, I better look up here where you're supposed to put like the sender's requ- uh, information, right? But again, it's, it's blank. There's nothing there. There's no name. There's no address. And so perhaps you're like, well, I, maybe I can find like the postmark, right? That will at least tell me when this was sent. Maybe that will be a clue that will unlock this like growing mystery I have in my hands, right? So you like, you scan the front, the back, you look everywhere for a postmark, but again, there's nothing there. There's no postmark, just a, just a stamp. And so at this point, you're left with really maybe one option, which is to open the envelope and to pull out this document, hoping that perhaps whoever sent this at least gave like some sort of greeting of like, dear, you know, James, Right? hoping that maybe that's a clue. So you open the letter, and you open it up, but again, it's, it's blank. There's no, there's no greeting, not even to whom it may concern, right? There's nothing. And so kind of growing in like, I mean, I got to figure this out. You're like, okay, well, maybe if I go to the end of the letter, if I flip to the end here, maybe I'll see who, who sent it. Maybe they signed their name, like, dear, your loving brother, Zach, right? But again, there's nothing there. The document just ends, and so you stand there by your mailbox, looking kind of like a fool, maybe, (laughs) but you're holding this letter, and you don't know who sent it, you don't know when it was sent, you don't know where it was sent from, and you don't know who it was sent to. Vine Church, I give you the book of Hebrews. (laughs) Who wrote it? We don't know. When was it written? We don't know. Where was it sent from? We don't know. Who was it sent to? 
We don't know. Why are we studying it? Aha, I know this one. It's God's word. And it's been given to us for our encouragement, our instruction, and our correction. And although there is historical like uncertainty to these just contextual questions, there are clues. There are clues. Especially as we read through the book of Hebrews, we're given most likely like answers to all of these questions. There's not a certainty, but there's a likely answer to these questions. And I want to actually go through them this morning as we begin our time of Hebrews. And so just the question of who wrote Hebrews? Who's the author? And, and many have suggested Paul throughout time, that the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews. And that makes sense because Paul wrote most everything in the New Testament, so why not just one more to his resume, right? But most scholars who study the biblical languages agree that the style and substance don't actually match Paul's writings that we know for certain that he did write. And further, as we read Hebrews, we come to chapter 2, verse 3, in which the author, author's understanding of, of Jesus, he, they reveal, comes from a secondary source. Yet we know Paul had a firsthand encounter with Jesus on his way to Damascus. Acts tells us that. So if not Paul, who? Barnabas and Apollos are ideal candidates. But the truth is, we just don't know. But even though we don't know the specific person who wrote this, we know in reading the contents of Hebrews what is true of this person. And so first, we can establish this, that the author knows the readers. The author knows the readers. Chapter 10, verse 32, the author says, But recall the former days, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. In chapter 12, verse 4, he says, In your struggle against Excuse me, in your struggle against sin, clearly the author has some sort of knowledge or experience. He knows these readers. He's talking to them about their experiences in life. The author knows the readers. And secondly, we can establish this, that the author shared a pastoral care and concern for these readers. In chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Beloved, feel sure of better things. He loves these people. This author loves these people. In chapter 13, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. He has some sense of calling or responsibility to care and show concern to give them this word of encouragement or exhortation. And so we can know these two things with, with pretty certainty that the author knows these readers and that the author has a pastoral care and concern for these readers. Excuse me. So the question then is, well, who are these readers? Who was Hebrews written to? Again, there are clues as we read through Hebrews. Most likely, these people were Jewish Christians. Most likely. That is to say that these were men and women formerly of Jewish faith who had converted to Christianity. And why do I say this? Well, as you read through Hebrews, unlike any other New Testament book, like perhaps like Galatians or Colossians, the writing, the substance of Hebrews gives no evidence of Gentile readership. Specifically, there's no mention of circumcision. 
Secondly, and probably more importantly, no other New Testament book necessitates its readership like Hebrews does to possess an understanding of Jewish history and faith, which is interesting when you consider that Hebrews contains the most Old Testament Jewish elements than any other book that we have in the New Testament. For example, right out of the gates, we'll see this in a little bit, chapter 1, verse 1, right out of the gates, the author says this, without any measure of explanation, he assumes a Jewish understanding saying, God spoke to our fathers. You have to understand that. And throughout Hebrews, as the writing continues, the author never slows down to explain all of these very distinctive Jewish elements in a book that concludes like people like Melchizedek. Who is this person, right? There's no explanation to the Levitical priesthood or sacrificial system and how they function. The author simply assumes that their readers knows and understands these very Jewish things. So what do we know of these readers? First, we can say the readers of Hebrews, I believe, most likely were Jewish Christians. And secondly, we can establish that the reader of Hebrew knew the author. This was a relationship that one that they knew each other. In chapter 13, verse 18 The author says this, pray for us, pray for us, talking to the readers, pray for us in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. There's a a relationship between author and reader. They know of each other. There's a familiarity. So when was Hebrews written? Scholars will generally agree that Hebrews was likely written before uh, 70 A.D., so 70 years after the birth of Christ. Why? Because the author refers to this ongoing idea of temple worship, which post-70 A.D. we know would not be a reality for the temple was destroyed. And furthermore, as we read Hebrews, we discover that these readers are living in a specific time where they presently are suffering hostility and hardship because of their faith in Jesus. Again, the author says in chapter 10, he says, you, you readers of Hebrews, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Later in chapter 12, he says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Meaning they haven't died for their faith yet, but there is suffering up until that point, right? And so the source of their suffering is a curiosity, right? And it could be coming from a few different Things One, it could be coming from those within the Jewish community who despise really this kind of new spin of Judaism that is Christianity. As, as Christianity was becoming established uh, distinct from the Jewish faith. Or it could be coming from the Romans who governed the land at this time and who we historically know persecuted Christians. We can think Nero in the early 60s. Or it could be both. We don't know the source of their suffering, but we do know that this letter was written in a time in which these Christians began to feel an increase in hostility, whether it was hatred from the Jewish community or from the oppressive Roman government. These Christians at this time were acutely feeling a growing increase in hardship and difficulty as a direct result of their profession of faith in Jesus Christ, leaving them to wonder this question, is it really worth it? Is following Jesus really worth it? Because perhaps for them, a return back to Judaism, a return to their former way of life, would just be better, perhaps safer. 
more comfortable. And so in Hebrews, we have an author, a person that we know is filled by just pastoral care and concern, and he writes this letter to these suffering Christians whom he knows and loves, and he tells them really three things. Jesus is better. He's worth it. Don't give up. And he says this in various ways throughout his letter, but in chapter 12, a very familiar verse which really summarizes some of this, what I just said. He says this, let us run with endurance the race, this race metaphor again, right? This race of faith. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. See, for this concerned pastor, how do these suffering Christians run with endurance? How do they run with endurance? Well, he says it's by understanding who Jesus is, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so throughout Hebrews, this author masterfully declares the supremacy of Jesus masterfully declares the supremacy of Jesus again and again and again and again. We'll see how the author elevates Jesus, how he brings Jesus to the front of the line, how he exalts Jesus as greater, how he showcases Jesus to be better than anyone or anything so that it become painfully obvious to these Jewish Christians reading this book that to turn back to Judaism, that that would be damning. Because Jesus is better. Chapter 1. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the prophets. Chapter 3. Jesus is better than Moses. Buckle up. Chapter 4. Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus is better than the promised land. Chapter 5. Jesus is better than the Aaron. Better than any priest. Better than the high priest. Chapter 7. Jesus is better than this priest king Melchizedek. Chapter 8. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than the old covenant. Chapter 9. Jesus is better than the tabernacle. Chapter 10. Jesus is better than the sacrificial system. Chapter 12. Jesus is better better than Mount Sinai because why not unlike the never-ending unsolvable conversation is LeBron or MJ better there isn't even a conversation when it comes to Jesus because Jesus is just better period clearly and decisively this concerned pastor clarifies the supremacy of Jesus over everything over everything that these Jewish Christians might have been tempted to turn back to. To secure their identity, to shelter their trust, to attach their hope. And some of you might be asking, well, why does this even matter? I got no temptation to climb back into the old covenant. I got no temptation to convert to Judaism. Like, how is this relevant? Why is this guy all worked up? Because we all face life's temptations, especially when life puts the squeeze on us to turn to something we believe will generate our safety or our comfort or our peace. And I purposefully took us through these contextual considerations so that as we read and study Hebrews in the weeks ahead, we might feel the totality of what these real men and real women felt as they navigated their pursuit 
of Jesus. Of men and women frightened by what they faced in life. Of, of men and women with, a, with really a sagging faith in God. Of men and women dismayed and, and doubting that Jesus was really worth it. Of men and, and women amidst a situation like quickly spinning out of their control, placing them directly into challenging and uncomfortable spaces. Of men and women ultimately tempted to return back to something other than Jesus to secure their peace and comfort. You see, even though hundreds of years separate us from these Christians, we still relate to their situation and temptation as we consider our own life decisions. And if we place ourselves in these shoes, it's there that we can understand the full force for the purpose of this book, that Jesus is just better than anyone or anything. Jesus is just but better. And over this next year, you're going to be, me, myself included, we're going to be confronted with this truth that Jesus is better over and over, pretty much every sermon, over and over. You might tire of it, but it's a truth that beckons the question that I pray we're courageously honest to, to, to answer that, what might I be looking for in my own life better than Jesus? Where might I be looking for something better than Jesus in my life? Where am I turning to find my comfort, my hope, my joy, my purpose? If I'm to believe that Jesus is better than anyone or anything... If I'm going to, as the author of Hebrews says, hold on to the faith of my confession in Jesus, then that's going to require that Jesus, God, has actually revealed himself to me that I might believe. Which is exactly how Hebrews begins, by expressing this important truth, God has spoken. We're going to look at the first 30 words, words of Hebrews, and then we're done. Chapter 1, verse 1. The author of Hebrews. I got to tell you something. As a preacher, it's really hard to say the author of Hebrews rather than just like he, she, Paul, right? Okay? So if I mess up, forgive me. The author of Hebrews says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Remember Job, his story in the Old Testament? It was asked, can you know the things of God? And the answer was, was no, you you can't, for God is beyond our realm. So if we think about it, if there is a God, and if there is a God who wants us to know him, he's going to have to speak to us, right? And so this realization qualifies Hebrews 1 verse 1 as really the most wonderful truth that God has spoken. This summer, my extended family gathered at a state park in one of the most glorious parts of Iowa. And there are many glorious parts to Iowa. But this particular park is known for its caves. Yeah, we got caves in Iowa. 
So the few and the brave of my family went spelunking, expecting myself to maybe explore just a few feet of this cave. I came along, and so did my seven-year-old. And as we entered the cave, it appeared that it would be a short exploration, like the cavern seemed to stop just a few feet in. But one of my nieces observed this like little crevice that you could go into, and then it opened up into like this little three-foot walkway that seemed like it extended, you know, this cave. And to my horror, my what normally is a very timid seven-year-old grabs my phone, my flashlight, out of my hands and scampers into this crevice. And under this weight of parental obligation, I try to catch up. Yet her being quite smaller than me, again, it's a three-foot clearance here, and holding the, the light, she's zipping through this cave, this tunnel, walkway, And me, being big and goofy and no light, am I lagging further and further uh, behind? And the further away she got from me, the darker and darker and darker it got. Where at one point, I I put my hand literally an inch from my face. Absolute darkness. I couldn't even see my hand. And in that absolute darkness I began to lose my orientation, like, which way is forward? Where is back? Where's right? Where's left? And I knew that without a light, there was no way out of this darkness. Fortunately, Lucy realized her dad was not behind her, and she came and delivered me from my sheer terror and panic. But here's my point. (laughs) Without God shining his light of salvation to us, We have no way out of our darkened mind. Without God shining his light of salvation to us, we have no way out of our darkness. Carl Henry says this. I I like this a lot. He says, revelation, God's revelation, is God's gracious act whereby he forfeits his personal privacy so that his sinful creatures might know him. I love that. Forfeits his personal privacy. You see, it's by God's grace that God has spoken. God's not a silent God. Take heart. He's not silent. He's made himself known. And in fact, when we uh, read chapter 1, verse 1 of Hebrews, what does it say? It says that God has spoken at many times and in many ways, right? And as we read through our Bible, we, we know this to be true. We, we see how God spoke through the prophets, that God spoke through the scriptures. God spoke through a, a mountain that shook with fire. God spoke through a tablet of stone. God spoke through a burning bush. God spoke through dreams. God spoke through riddles. God spoke, I mean, he spoke through a mysterious hand just writing on the wall. That's crazy. God spoke even through A donkey, right? In many ways, in many times, but all by God's grace, God has spoken that we might know him. In verse 2, the author says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And that is simply to say that 
the final and full revelation of this God who speaks is in his son. A final and full revelation of this God who speaks is in this son, in his son. And we could spend some time here, and this is a good conversation, but does this mean every way and every time God spoke prior as we read through specifically the Old Testament that we should just you know, dismiss and ignore this burning bush or this donkey? Should we just dismiss that, put that to a side? Not at all. Not at all. It just means that all the ways that God spoke prior were incomplete, were, were fragmented, were part of a bigger story. We could compare, we could illustrate this, we could compare the many times and many ways that God spoke in the Old Testament specifically as as, as each one of those instances, like the burning bush, the donkey, the prophets, as each one of those instances were just like a singular puzzle piece to a gigantic 5,000 piece puzzle. But now in Jesus, this final and full revelation of God, we don't possess just like one more puzzle piece to like, man, where does this puzzle piece go, right? In Jesus, we have like the picture on the puzzle box. In in Jesus, we possess an absolute clarity and finality in understanding how everything that God has spoken throughout time is fulfilled. Jesus is the final and full revelation of our God who's spoken. Are you with me? And if Jesus is the final and full revelation of God, the question for us to answer is simply, are we listening? Are we listening to this final and full revelation of God? For in God's grace, God forfeited his personal privacy. Remember that quote? God forfeited his personal privacy and sent us a better and greater prophet of all time, Jesus, to satisfy our need to grasp him with our senses, to see him, to touch him, to listen to him. God has spoken. And in closing, I want you to remember the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. The trial that Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. Pilate demanded to know if Jesus thought himself a king, right? Remember that? And Jesus replied that his kingdom was not of this world. And when Pilate responded doubtfully, Jesus related his kingship to the final and full revelation of God's truth in the world. He says this, Jesus says this, For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth, to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate, looking into the very face of God's son, the final and full revelation of God, through whom God revealed truth, Pilate, looking at this face and filled by some sort of relativism of his day, responds, what's Truth. What is truth? Before Pilate stood the very truth of God, yet Pilate denies even the possibility of truth. Pilate thought he was judging Jesus. But actually, the truth before him, it was Pilate who was really on trial. And the same is true for us today. 
The same is true for us today. And as we study Hebrews, Jesus, this final and full revelation of God, who we'll hear much more about next week as we continue in chapter 1. But Jesus, this final and full revelation of God through whom God revealed ultimate truth, the truth of God is standing before you and I through his word. God has spoken. And the question before us as we enter Hebrews is, will we listen to this God who has spoken as we study this book together? And I pray that we choose to listen to Jesus, God's truth, and that we hear this very clearly Because we need this truth that Jesus is just better than anyone or anything. That life with Jesus is always worth it. Therefore, let's not give up. Let's pray. Father God, we stand here in, in some sense terrified of your entrance into our world to speak to us. But Lord, we also stand or sit here amazed that it's a message of love, that you have brought your truth into our world to deliver us out of our darkness and into your light that we may live freely. Lord, thank you for saving us from our sins. I pray for anyone here this morning who's who's curious about what the message of the gospel is all about who Jesus is and what this truth is. Lord, I pray that there be a boldness and a courage to ask and to inquire and to continue to seek you, Jesus. And by the power of your word, I pray that you'd grant them ears to hear your word so clearly. I pray for others of us in this room, Lord, that we would choose to have ears, a soft heart, a humility to hear from you as we launch into a study of Hebrews that there would be this humility, posture of humility as we come and sit under your authority, your word. Lord, we want to not lag or drift away from you as perhaps there might be temptation to do, but we want to be steadfast, immovable in our faith with you, Lord. We hope, or we, we pray for your help uh, in that, Jesus, especially as we continue in this time of Hebrews. It's your name we pray. Amen.